Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Four Shirts Podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And here with us today is Dipanjan Chatterjee, Vice President and Principal Analyst, to discuss a very different way of thinking about brand. Welcome to Panjan. Hello, Victor. Hello, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, wonderful to be here. So we're going to start with a concept of change. And there is a strong relationship between brand and customer experience, experience that the customers actually get from that brand promise. And the second one is it's getting clear that companies need to design around the human being versus to have designed sort of their thought processes around the company itself. And these two things are the centerpiece of a lot of what's changing in the marketplace and obviously changing the way to thinking about brand. But I want to start with the concept of, even though these are known to Panjin, how much of this has entered into the way that people actually think about brand and manage their brand? Victor, change is hard and change is very, very slow. Um, let me give you two milestones. So most marketers are familiar with this notion of AIDA, awareness, interest, desire, action. Um, in fact, this is the genesis of uh, the whole idea that if you advertise, then they will come to you. You know, AIDA was first popularized in 1900. I mean, that's more than a century ago. So the intention behind AIDA is very noble. But in many ways, a lot of marketers are still clinging to the somewhat archaic notion of awareness. Uh, And in doing that, they're ignoring an entire century of advances in our understanding of consumer behavior. So, Dipanjan, can you describe what has changed? So, Jennifer, the fundamental change is that now human decision-making, human behavior is at the epicenter of branding. Now, unfortunately, the branding models that are most prevalent today really hark back to kind of the classic PNG-style brand management from the 1970s. Now, as a brand model, that's a fine way to organize a brand function, but it does have a crucial flaw. And the flaw is this. It objectifies the brand. It considers the brand to be something that an organization can control and something that it it can manipulate. Um, And here's the problem with it. The brand is not a thing. It's a perception. And by no means today is the brand controllable. So take uh, Uber, for example. That brand has been made and unmade in the court of public opinion about a million times. Um, you know, in the, in the old days of sort of 1970s brand management, tide, the perception of the brand tide would be exactly what PNG would want it to be because it controlled every channel of information dissemination. In the age of the customer, that's history, right? Um, there are millions of fingertips on these keyboards of smartphones that really determine the fate of a brand. Yeah, and you mentioned this this example of Tide versus Uber, and you can, there's also the examples of United and the examples of Pepsi, where you know something goes out, it goes out into the social arena. And then you get this democratization process where people will decide what the brand really is. And it's almost as if the, those, the companies, you know, in this case, Pepsi or United, are more in a PR you know, crisis management versus a brand management mode at that point in time. And it does go to that, that, that fundamental point that you referenced, which is this idea of command and control. And I, I guess the, you know, the question really is, is how much do you find that companies 
even though they probably intellectually recognize that they really don't control their brand, they're really struggling with this notion of having a democratized brand that they really don't control. So, uh, Victor, what uh, a brand can control um, is what its essence is. What other people are saying about the brand is really now at the discretion of the millions out there empowered with their smartphones and their tablets. But a brand still has the right to set the tone for its core essence and for its personality. And what it can also do is express this personality through experience. And that really is the delivery of the brand promise. It's the customer experience that the brand takes out to the market. Now, this is a very, very important difference from the branding world that we knew before. Yeah, because these were traditionally siloed entities. I mean, customer experience or those people that are on the front line of the business, they were, I suspect, aware of the brand. But if I think of branding equals advertising um, or sort of going through the channels, that was what marketing did. And the experience was delivered by the people in the business. I mean, those were separate worlds. You hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, from an organizational standpoint, it's just so much cleaner to separate out the brand part of the organization from the CX part of the organization. But look at it from a consumer's viewpoint, which is really the only way a good marketer should look at it. This dichotomy between CX and brand is utter nonsense for a consumer, right? It's one and the same. So, in, with every experience, um, you positively or negatively impact the perception of your brand. Um, so over the lifespan of the interactions that a customer or even a prospect has with the brand, there is an intermingling between the experience and the perception. So Tapanjan, you, you brought up a topic that said every experience is evoking a positive and negative reaction to the brand. And invariably, that's an emotional reaction in one way, shape, or form. Emotion has always been tied to the concept of brand, but it's not really tied to the way the brand is managed or the operations that sort of surround the brand. Emotion has been something that people assume to be there. And we're now getting to a point in time where emotion has to be considered in the design of those experiences so that they conjure up the kind of emotional response that drive recall and those types of things. I mean, are we at a point in time where emotion is sort of on the table intellectually again, but it's not really in the way people work? Um, yes, absolutely. You know, I think emotion has been sort of floating around the periphery for a while. Uh, but we've always thought about emotion in almost uh, somewhat a flippant manner. Mm. Uh, you know, we've thought about uh, the cute puppies and ads and sort of uh, moments of heartbreak and, and emotionally moving advertising and so on. But we've never seriously incorporated emotions from a much more rigorous, scientific, and analytical perspective uh, into brand management. And the work that I've been doing recently does exactly that. It incorporates emotions from a paradigm-based quantitative framework to help CMOs and brand managers actually manage their brand. Yeah, so I think let's dig into that a little bit because clearly these dynamics are telling us that we need to think and manage the brand differently. And you touched on this a little bit in your previous response. So can you walk us through the framework that you've um, recently published some work on? Yes, absolutely. So the first thing 
um, that one needs to understand before delving into the framework um, is the idea, and this stems from a whole bunch of uh, research in psychology and consumer behavior and so on that's been done in the last couple of decades, um, this idea that um, there is a distinction between our deliberate, rational decision-making process and our automatic decision-making process. A lot of people know this as kind of the distinction between fast thinking and slow thinking mm -hmm. uh, popularized by Daniel Kahneman. Um, and what he writes, uh, and, I, and I don't recall the exact number, but over 90% of our decisions are driven by our non-conscious minds. This is extremely important because emotional markers play a critical role in driving decision-making from our non-conscious. More than marketers would like to uh, to think, right? The percentage of decisions are more emotionally based than most assume. Is that correct? Is that how I'm understanding it? Right. So the percentage of the decisions that are made um, based on what you might almost consider an automatic response right. Um you know, that's sort of 90% of it. I assume that most marketers are uncomfortable with that statistic. Yes, they're uncomfortable because we are so accustomed to thinking of features and, and functionality and pricing really driving branding and marketing. And this sudden shift to emotions um, in, creates a situation that marketers are not that familiar with. However, think about it. We've always known this deep in our gut. Think of the brands that we feel strongly about. You know, for some, it might be Apple and Starbucks. For some, it might be um, Harley. It might be Subaru, what have you. Um, the reason we feel so strongly about these brands is not because of price. It's not because of a certain feature or a certain function they have. There is something much deeper going on, something that we can't quite put our fingers on. And that is emotion. Right? So marketers have known this all the while, but they're uncomfortable about it because they don't know what to do about it. And I think that's the biggest development in our work. We are actually giving marketers a way to do something about this. Yeah, it seems like, you know, going back to your comment about features, one of the follows of that is if it's a feature discussion and a feature decision, I can make a logical argument on information I control, and I can relatively predict how you react. But if 90% of your decisioning is outside my purview, and I don't know how to influence that, then it feels like I have a lot less leverage in the marketplace. And so, you know, I think what we're going to is how do we find different ways to influence that 90% of decisioning that is not a logical argument? Right. And compounding that is the proliferation of brands and the proliferation of information. Um, there's just such a glut of information that people are overwhelmed. Um, and, and when people are overwhelmed, they really sort of reach back to what we call kind of a gut feeling, right? Um, which is nothing else but really reaching back to core emotions that drive preference towards certain brands. So people are becoming more instinctual. Yes. Exactly. And, and that's, uh, that's a big part of it. Now, there is always an interplay between kind of the instinct piece and more of the deliberate rational piece. And the, the proportion might vary for certain categories versus others. 
But yes, the bottom line is that the role of emotion and the role of instinct um, really is the largest contributor to brand. So underpinning this is this idea that we have to consider emotion, we have to consider that instinctual response. We have to consider this idea that people are increasingly tribal. People really do see fit as sometimes a societal question, a political question, an economic question. Of course, there's the fit to lifestyle, which is always prevalent in the decision. And the third part, which is sort of a persistent part of advertising, is how do I stay top of mind across the journey, across the day in life as my context and preferences change? I mean, those three things are still very much the centerpiece of how I might think of brand. That's absolutely right. Um, You know, there are a whole host of things that go into brand. So you do need a holistic model to be able to capture it. And what we've come up with is what we call brand energy. And the idea here is brand energy is, is a power or a charge that a brand builds up. So essentially, with every positive experience or every positive exposure, you boost the charge of the brand. With every negative experience, you deplete the charge. If you have high brand energy, it drives real value. So what does that mean? It means that the brand with high energy is likely to be preferred. There's a much higher likelihood it will be purchased there's a higher likelihood that the consumer, the customer will pay a premium for the product. And this person is also much more likely to go out and recommend it. So this idea of brand energy as a brand metric is particularly important because it's not just any metric about brand that we made up. What's vitally important for marketers to understand is that it's a brand metric that drives real value. If you increase brand energy, you drive all of these outcomes like preference and purchase that actually drives financial value. So Dipanu, can you describe what the specific piece parts are of the framework? Absolutely. So we started with uh, surveying about four and a half thousand. And we asked them about brands in retail and consumer banking. And then we ran them through a battery of questions about attitudes and attributes and outcomes. And we took all of this and we ran it through kind of big data analytics and literally millions of pathways looking for relationships and drivers. And what we found was that there were three dimensions that contributed to brand energy. And let me go through them one by one. So. The most important dimension, which contributes roughly half of brand energy, is emotion. The second piece is salience. And by salience, what we mean here is top of mind, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Salience contributes about 30%. And then finally, fit contributes 20%. And by fit, um, we mean both the... Sort of features and functionality that drive relevance, but also uh, how relevant or how meaningful is this product with the individual's lifestyle? Is this the right kind of product for him or for her? So why don't we go into them one by one, Dipanjan, because I want to each of them have their different dynamics. So let's start with emotion. We ran some podcasts with James McQuivy, and we talked a lot about the new science of emotion, this idea that 
part of what really triggers emotion is that there's a recall already set in the brain. There's something that's already sort of ready for the emotion. And much of the emotion is driven by the anticipation of what may happen, not actually the realization of what did happen. How should we think of emotion in the context of brand energy? So there are two ways that uh, emotions uh, becomes extremely important in the context of brand and brand energy. The first pertains to the discussion we had on uh, you know, fast thinking um, and our, our desire to really leverage our automatic processes in decision making. Um, the emotions facilitate fast thinking. As a result, as marketers, we have to pay tremendous attention to emotions if we want our consumers, if we want our prospects to behave a certain way pertaining to brands. The second piece of it is that emotions are connected to our memories. So our experiences create memories, and this is the link between brand and CX. And then these memories then drive our preferences. Now, what emotions do is they supercharge memories. So there's a, a, a chef friend of mine who says bacon makes everything taste better, <laughs> right? So emotions are bacon for your memories. So this is sort of the concept of defining moments where some moments are simply more important than others from the standpoint of what emotions they evoke and sort of what recall that they might cause later. Right. So if you have the right positive emotional experience, it really makes that piece of your memory much more potent. And it comes into play at the time when you're ready to pick something. So it makes certain brands more salient. It makes certain brands much more likely to be purchased. So there's a direct line between the the emotional content of an experience and the impact that it can have on decision-making for that brand. And that really is the important connection one needs to make for brand management based on emotions. Dipanjan, so what you're telling me is that we as marketers, as I am a marketer, are supposed to insert ourselves into the unconscious of consumers that in a process in which they don't even really control or know that's happening to them. How does, how does a marketer supposed to tackle that? But Jennifer, I think um, just because a consumer doesn't know it's happening to them um, doesn't mean that it's not happening. Um, so what I mean by that is the way we behave in the face of the decision is really a function of an accumulation of experiences. So the simple way to, to frame this for a brand is that if you continue to do the right thing, you continue to generate the positive experiences, you are building a memory bank that's going to induce your consumer to act in the way you desire. So this is the link between brand and customer experience, where the customer experience is actually creating that foundational layer, which is serving as that unconscious thing they're tapping into. So yes, Victor, that is the inextricable relationship between brand and customer experience. Now, let me give you the example of Delta Airlines. Um, you know, and I know this only too well because I live in Cincinnati, where you know Delta has a hub. 
Um, and about five or six years ago, I had stopped flying them because they were just as miserable as every other airline that flew out of Cincinnati. But as many of us know, uh, Delta's done a remarkable job in turning around their customer experience. And one experience at a time, one flight at a time, they have created a wealth of positive experiences, positive memories that have been banked in my memory bank. So that's the link between the customer experience, the brand preference, and the salience, which then translates into buying tickets on Delta and added revenue for the carrier. Yeah, and it's such an important consideration because now we're really talking about living in a world where digital platforms aren't making decisions against preferences that are stated. We've done some podcasts with James McQuivy and Mike Facemeyer and Keith Johnson where we're learning in the future more and more of these preferences will be instantiated into digital platforms, meaning your inherent preference for Delta will be played over by people by the digital platform recommending Delta to you time and time again and giving it Delta an inherent advantage against other airlines from a digital standpoint. So this idea that you're creating that foundation for that preference is vital now and arguably increasingly important going forward. I do. And I think, um, you know, there's an advantage to the incumbent who has a strong brand equity if you've really endeared yourself to your customer and you are the brand of choice, and we are suddenly encountering a shift in the way we consume, um, in the channels by which these brands are distributed to a scenario where the brands get built in to some sort of automatic recommendation, then the brands that are ahead today that have squarely cemented positions of strength in the minds of consumers clearly stand an advantage. So Tapanjan, we talked about emotion and salience and the third component of the brand energy framework is fit. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Uh, of course. Uh, there are two ways with uh, which I look at fit. So the first part of it is kind of a quasi-literal version of fit, which is, does it meet my needs? Um, you know, is it at the right price point? Does it do the things that I want it to do? Um, and, and so on. And then the second part of it is, is this a brand for people like me? Right. So let's, uh, let's take the example of Tesla, right? Um, you know, I live in Cincinnati, and uh, around me there isn't quite the density of uh, charging stations as there might be in Boston or San Francisco. So no matter how much I might love the Tesla brand, it really doesn't make sense for me to buy a Tesla because I would be stranded on highway. Right. Um, I, uh, you know, I might uh, think highly of JetBlue, but it doesn't fly into the Cincinnati airport. So it really is, for the large, for the most part, irrelevant for me. So that's a dimension of fit. The other dimension of fit is its applicability to my worldview. So with Tesla, I might say, hey, um, I, I believe in the progressive nature of Tesla. I believe where, with where they're going in terms of clean energy. Um, so Tesla or perhaps some other vehicle of an electric nature is the right brand for me. So how should a brand think of the framework and, and maybe just give an example about at a high level, Dipanjan, how to apply it? So I think um, the most practical way for a brand to apply this 
uh, is to do this assessment uh, for their category yeah? and perhaps an extended category. And through this analysis, they can understand the uh, both the share of emotions that drive brand energy, but also the nature of these three dimensions that I talked about, emotions, salience, and fit, uh, and the relative importance of these dimensions and their contribution to brand energy. Um, so, for example, if you take a brand like Office Depot, uh, they score very well on fit and quite well on salience, but unfortunately not so well on the emotional aspect. And, and this makes intuitive sense, right? When we need office products, we will dash into one of these office superstores and pick up some pens and pencils and so on. Um, but we don't really feel a compelling attachment to office people, do we? Right? Um, so this shows up in the emotional scope. So as a result, the overall brand energy score for Office Depot is quite a bit lower than some other brands in the retail space, admittedly of a different nature, but brands like IKEA or brands like Nordstrom that tend not to have scores that are super high along the fit and salience dimension, but they do have very high emotion scores. Um, so the moral of the story here is that emotion can be your trump card. It, it, really can get you over the line. So, Tapanjan, we described a very different world, and it's clear marketers are struggling with both the reality on the ground and how to get away from their command and control operations. So as you speak with marketers and you sort of think through this brand energy framework, what does it mean to them to take an action here? So first off, the reality of it is that if you don't go there, your customers will drag you there, right? So, um, you know, resistance is going to be futile. So my uh, you know, advice to uh, brand managers and CMOs is, hey, if you've got to get there eventually, why not roll up your sleeves and get there right now? So the way to do it, I think, for CMOs is not to lose sight of the forest. Um, you know, we are migrating from a model of brand management, which is very internal looking, to a model that tries to understand human behavior. When we do this, we significantly widen the lens of marketing. You know, we, we grow it from managing prices and channels and promotions to really trying to influence perceptions of human beings. So it is vitally important for a CMO to not lose sight of the forest in chasing marketing trees. I think that's absolutely critical. The other aspect of it in making this transition and moving to a world where building a brand based on emotions is the right way to do it is by creating a data and justification-led model of marketing. Now, you know, I've been doing this for decades. Uh, and whenever I sit with a CMO, he or she always tells me that, look, I get what you're trying to say. How do I make this credible and believable for my CEO? And at the end of the day, the CMO must use the same lexicon as the CEO. What we have done here is created a vision of branding that builds on something as call it if you will, sort of fuzzy as emotional, 
but connects it to something as hard and as concrete as financial value. So what I think we've done is we've empowered CMOs to take a data-driven, to take a financial justification route to building emotionally driven brands. Thanks for joining us, Dipanjan. Yeah, Dipanjan, this is great. Thank you so much for your time today. Super great. Thank you for having me. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.